Hi, and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast about people with remarkable stories of resilience, as well as experts in the field, along with myself, who share tips, strategies, and resources to help you power up your mental well-being. You can support our work by leaving a review or donating on our site, which is at qedod.com. You can also purchase our resources, including the imaginatively titled series of books, Resilience Unraveled, Leadership Unraveled, Management Unraveled, and Anxiety Unraveled at qedod.com forward slash extras. Free resources are also available on that page at qedod.com forward slash extras. Enough chat, let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And tonight um, I'm talking, well, it's tonight for me, Julie, isn't it? But I don't know, we'll get to where you are in the world in a second, but it looks like it's very light where you are. But today I'm talking to Julie Lewis. And uh, and I know that Julie is joining me from one of my favourite cities in the world. So over to you, Julie. Where are you in the world? Well, I'm in Seattle, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And we're known for our rain, but today we have blue skies, sunshine, and it's like 73 out there. So it, you can't ask for a better day here. That sounds fantastic. So... Um, as I sit here being very envious of your fantastic weather and climate, then um, you better tell people what it is that you do. Well, I do a lot of things. Um, I um, I have worked most of my life in nonprofit. Um, and uh, right now, uh, post-COVID, I just launched a book. Um, but what... Um, I'm a storyteller, basically, and a public speaker, and um, I talk a lot about healthcare access and healthcare inequity and equity mm. um, around the world, um, which ties into my story. Uh, really, I had a pretty typical life uh, going. I had, you know, uh, got married, had three kids, and then in 1990, my life took a pretty major pivot when I was diagnosed with HIV um, from a blood transfusion I'd received six and a half years earlier. Wow. So at that point I was given, you know, three to five years to live, um, not optimistically. It was mm -hmm. kind of like, you might possibly live three to five years and those last two years are gonna be bad. So go do whatever you want to soon. Really? And I was 32 and had a two-year-old, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So, um, but ironically, I was a science health teacher at that point. Um, also had a brother who was HIV positive. He's a gay man. Um, and we were all put on AZT um, and became incredibly sick. Um, and so I, we didn't tell people for a while. This was 1990. Um, and we lived in a very conservative area. Yeah. And so... Um, Four years later, uh, we told our six-year-old, <laughs> you're on your personal information broadcast to the whole world. You just tell a six-year-old, you know, yeah, all this quickest. stuff. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, um, I joined a speaker's bureau for 10 years and um, advocated for people with HIV, um, uh, talked about stigma and discrimination, mm -hmm. um, worked at the health department, uh, and you know, two thirds of my HIV positive friends died in that 10 years. Wow. Um, and then 
we we were living uh, in Eastern Washington, and then um, twenty years ago we moved to Seattle, where I uh, I had been working in a nonprofit most of my life, different different ones. And uh, when we moved to Seattle, I really needed a break from being the AIDS lady and working in advocacy. So I went to work for a construction nonprofit that uh, builds critical infrastructure for other organizations around the world. And that's pretty much what I've been doing since. Uh, in 2014, my family launched the 3030 Project um, with the goal to build 30 healthcare facilities in areas that lacked healthcare access. And we are just finishing our last two right now. So 10 years later, we're, we're wrapping up that project. Um, the, that 3030 Project ended up building 30 healthcare facilities for um, 18 organizations in nine different countries. Right. So um, that wrapped up, the, the funding for that wrapped up in 2019 and then COVID hit. So a couple of our buildings got delayed, but they're finally on track. Um, and during that time, I, I wrote my memoir, uh, starting with the phone call that in 1990, when my doctor told me that, yes. um, that I might have HIV. So, so my life, you know, it's kind of been down this this track of working on, um, you know, uh, human rights issues, really. Uh, yeah. So that's what I do. I I go out and I I tell stories and I talk and we have I have conversations with people. Okay, um, well, you give us tons to go out there. So, um, so well, uh, you you mentioned it. So let's go there. So the phone call. Yeah, uh, the phone call. call. So, I mean, what's the reaction to a phone call like that? Because a lot of people don't know that huge quantities of people that have HIV were yeah. actually through poor blood blood transfusions. We had a, a same sort of problem over here as well. But what's it like to get effectively a death sentence um, in, communicated to? Yeah, you? I think there's probably people out there who've had a phone call like that for various reasons. Um, yeah. you know, just a phone call that literally changes the track of your life. Yeah. Um, well, that day, uh, first of all, just to preface that, I had been sick for a couple years and would go to the doctor and nobody, you know, none of my tests that they did, nobody ran an HIV test, even though I wrote down, I clearly had a blood transfusion in 1984. But, you know, the doctors didn't think I looked like someone who had AIDS, so they didn't like test for it. Yeah. Um, so when I got the phone call, and my doctor basically started out with, you better sit down, yeah. which I did. And I'm like, this isn't going to be good. And he said, um, one of the people who gave blood in your blood transfusion has AIDS now. Um, so you need to go get a test. But he said, you know, this was six and a half years ago. So he could have or she could have had that, you know, got infected in that time. Yeah. But I knew immediately that it was going to be positive because I had just been sick with no good reason for a yeah. while. Yeah. And um, we were literally putting our boxes in a U-Haul at that time to move to from Seattle to Spokane, a five hour. It's, a you know, five hours from from here. Yeah. Because my husband had gotten a new job. So, yeah, it, there was so much that, that phone call. Um, the hardest part about that phone call was when. um was when I realized I had to get every person in my family tested for HIV. Yes, uh, of course. Yeah, like my my other two kids were born after that. So they were born to an HIV positive mom. Wow. And they had a 25 to 30 
percent chance of being infected. And then I breastfed my daughter who, who was born when I got infected. So she had a smaller chance. And then Scott, you know, we were pregnant for most of that time. And then he had a vasectomy. So we never used precaution. So I just sort of assumed he would probably have been infected too. Yeah. So we had to wait um, four days for those tests to come back for my family. Wow. And that was, I won't live through worse four days, I don't think. No, I bet. Um, yeah. So the phone call was a lot. It, there was, it was a lot, I, you know, to take in as yeah. a, you know, a young mom. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you've got choices when you get a phone call like that, don't you? You fall you apart. Do. Or you you say, I'm going to fight. There's a lot of sort of um, written in the literature about how people fight a disease or an illness. Some people accept it and move forward with it. Well, well I mean, and it takes a little bit of time to determine what your strategy is going to be. So what, what, what was yours? What was your plan to work with us? Well, I had to move my family. And I just when I got the call that, you know, you're the only person that's infected in your family, I was like, Good. I can handle this. Let's move. You know, I think my moment of reckoning was my first doctor appointment. Um, when his first two questions were, uh, first question was, do you have a will living will? And right. like, I'm looking at like, what 32 year old has a living will? Yeah. One that's going to die soon. Right. And then his next question was, what are your things in order? Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. I'm going to die. Like that was the first like real, like, yeah. Oh, wow. And, um, and then I, he, he gave me AZT and I've never been sicker in my life. Then the first three months I took AZT and yeah. my brother had been on AZT for a while. I didn't know my brother was infected with HIV until I oh, told wow. him because he yeah. hadn't told me. So, you know, so I was very sick. Um, I was trying to get my kids in new schools. I was, you know, it was awful. You know, I, it was awful. I, I'm not fearful of actually dying. I just never have been. I'm a person of faith. I just feel like, but looking at your two-year-old and thinking, oh my yeah. God, he's not going to remember me. You know, you know, I have a really good looking, awesome husband. There's no way he's not going to get remarried. And, you know, my grandkids are going to be calling some other woman grandma. I mean, it's a really weird, trippy thing yeah. to like be faced with that. And so, and the other thing I would say is living your life waiting to die is a horrible way to live. Right. It just, it's just bad. And I was given AZT with a beeper and, or a, a like a little, alarm it was a little thing that had the pills in it with an alarm and every four hours that alarm went off and you had to take that medicine yeah or you could become resistant to it so every four hours you're getting reminded you're dying right yeah, yeah. and um i was just super depressed i was just thinking about all the things i was gonna miss with my kids and trying to be act normal around them so it, they didn't think something was wrong um you know that went on for months and then I got more used to the medicine and it must have been six or eight months in really it took that long. And I woke up one day and I just thought, I don't feel any more dead today than I was yesterday. Mm. And I just sort of decided at that moment that I was just going to live my life mm. and that I wasn't going to think about, I was just going to 
assume I was going to keep living until I was like not living. Yeah. So I would like talk, everybody else. I would talk about the future like everyone else. And I just thought to myself, if talking about it is all that happens, that's better than nothing. You know, if I tell my kids I'm going to be a great grandma to their kids, that's better than never talking about it at all. Right. So I kind of dug myself deep into denial in a way in how I live my life while at the same time writing letters to my kids um, for their adult self. Because I'm like, if I die in three years, I'm not going to see Ryan get into kindergarten, you know, into the first grade. And all my kids are going to remember me as a little kid, you know, remembers their mom. So I just started writing to them as their adult self. So they would kind of know more about me. So it's this weird, weird place to live your life where you're just trying to uh, be normal and be happy. And, you know, I don't want my kids to remember me sad. So we had a lot of fun things we did. But at the same time, you kind of have to deal with preparing that maybe die and it's and it's it's a funny thing it's a horrible way to live but it's like lots of people have been put in that situation and the thing is we're often put in that situation at the end of our lives and actually Mm -hmm. it's quite interesting how little we talk about death and preparedness for death and thinking about it i mean there are films on the television about it you know which which are anomalous because actually they're so rare and it's sort of part of the human condition that we don't really think about it at all so the fact that you're you know, you know, as a young woman, you're for, sort of forced with a very young family to start thinking about this. It's quite interesting psychologically. I think it's it's. I wonder how much has contributed to the to to improving your life successes and chances. You know, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And you know, the first four years, the extra layer of that is we were in the closet. I did not want people to know I had HIV because. There was so much stigma and I didn't want my kids not to be able to play at someone's house because there was fear. I didn't, um, you know, there, people had a lot of weird ideas about HIV. And even though there was hard data about it at that point, you know, there was a lot of stigma. There was a lot of, you know, this is God's will for gay people, like just weird shit. Sorry to say that, but weird stuff, you know, around the disease. And um, I just didn't want, my kids were so little. I just didn't want them to experience any of that. So we were, I was a really good liar. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. keeping a family secret is almost as hard as waiting to die. (laughs) You know, it creates a lot of stress and pressure, but I, um, I got good at making excuses for why I wasn't out stuff and why I didn't feel well. Yeah. Um, just to protect my kids. So, and of um, course, it's it's a situation, I guess, that you're never cured of it. It's about how you live with it, is it? What's that? Is it is a continuing prognosis that it's about how you live with the condition now? Because no one sort of gets cured, do they? No, they don't. Not at this point, although the treatments are really amazing now. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what has changed is that uh, someone who is diagnosed with HIV now should have a normal lifespan. And if they're on the medications, um, well, if they're on the medications, they should have a normal lifespan. Plus, if um, the amount of virus in their body is undetectable, which doesn't mean it's gone, it just means the test can't detect it, they actually can't transmit the the virus. So 
a whole new day. So that's new. What isn't new is there's still a ton of stigma and discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would say it's even gotten worse with the, the last political season we've had in our country. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, all marginalized communities have become increasingly marginalized, every single one of them. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what was the motivation to um, sort of look at the of 3030 in the healthcare space because I'm, I'm 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 sort of thinking now that you seem a person that once you set your mind to something that it's going to be it's going to be some form of success so i was interested to think why you thought that the, the initial um, process well a lot of things just kind of collided for the 3030 project one i'm a, i'm a health teacher i i work in public health for years at the health department um i used to be a high school health teacher science teacher but um, then I was working for this nonprofit that builds critical infrastructure in poor areas for um, for organizations working on uh, healthcare, education, and community um, development. So I was vetting all their their projects and recommending ones for, that they built for. Um, and then in 2014, I it was my 30 year anniversary of surviving HIV. Well, and my uh, kids, who are now adults, um, yeah. were like, Mom, we have to do something to celebrate. And I was like, that feels really awkward because so many of my friends died. Like, I don't feel like I can celebrate. But I said to them, if we could figure out a project that we could do in honor of them, like a pay it forward kind of good thing, Beautiful. that would feel good, you know. And then I suggested my big idea was that we build one healthcare facility somewhere in the world. We raised the money to do that. We don't actually build things. Um, the nonprofit construction for change um, builds for the 3030 project. So anyway, I was like, let's build one, let's raise money to build one healthcare facility. Uh, and, I, and I had a couple ideas of who to build for because that was my job. Yeah. And Ryan, um, my son Ryan is a music producer and he was having a lot of success at the time. And he just looked at me and goes, mom, we can't just build one. You lived 30 years. We need to build 30. And I just wow. looked at him like, oh my gosh, 30 is so many more than one, Ryan. But he talked me into that. And I had a lot of support from his group at the time, McLemore and Ryan Lewis. Um, they, they helped us raise the money. Um, and so we had a pl platform in that moment of our life that was way bigger um, than just one family. And so, um, yeah, he made me a cool video and we launched this project, um, on national television, got on Anderson Cooper and, uh, the, the Today Show, tons of stuff, you know, and we had, we did an Indiegogo campaign and we funded like five clinics in a short period of time. Yeah. And then he went back to work and everyone went back to work, their regular jobs. And all of a sudden it was just me with this humongous goal. And I mean, I had a few nights when I would just sweat and think, what in the world did I just tell all of America is going to do? Yeah. And so from that point on, it was a lot, it was slow going. Um, but I'm a public speaker. I had, uh, I was on that speakers bureau for 10 years. Like I had a lot of speaking experience. So I just started speaking to anyone and everyone how uh, this about this idea that healthcare spaces could create healthcare access. Yeah. 
And um, eventually we had enough success that we hired a couple staff. And um, one person we hired was a um, person do, that did measurement and evaluation, which was our smartest move ever because instead of saying this clinic is in a cashman area of like 20,000 people, we actually said, this many people are walking into the clinic, this many people are getting HIV tests, this many people are pregnant, this many people had babies, you know, like, we actually had numbers. Bring it to and life. Once we could prove that healthcare spaces were creating healthcare access, the last two years of funding came in pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we got a lot of corporate sponsors. So, and then COVID hit. Of course. <laughs> and our, uh, we're building in, you know, nine different countries and that's a challenge you know mm. so it, it was a little slower just to finish which countries our... which which sort of countries which sort of projects just to give us a note just a bit of an overview we did mostly clinics and maternity wards but okay. we had we had a research center like we had a lot of little one-offs too that were just yeah. really interesting um we were primarily in african countries so uh, Uganda, Kenya, Malawi, T Togo, uh, South Africa. Yeah. Um, I'm probably leaving out one or two. Um, but, and then we're in Bolivia. And we did several projects in the United States and then uh, in Puerto Rico. After the, in Puerto Rico, after the hurricanes hit, we did a lot of solar yes. projects um, because their power grid's really bad. Yes. Um, yeah. So, and we worked with the Clinton Global Initiative on those. We partnered with a lot of organizations. Um, and so obviously that led to writing a book because obviously sitting around during COVID doing nothing, um, I don't, you're not, yes, don't seem that sort I of person. I started writing the book before COVID, but when COVID hit, I felt like a very vulnerable person, you know, with a compromised immune system. So my writing kind of went into hyperspeed because I was like, Oh my gosh, I literally could die. Like the epicenter in the United States for COVID was Seattle. Wow. So um, I just started writing as fast as I could. Of course, I'm a science teacher, so I got all the facts in there, but, you know, wasn't written very well. But I just kept thinking, if I happen to die of this COVID thing, my, my husband's brother died of COVID. I'm like, it was in our face. Wow. And I was like, if I happen to die of this, at least I'll have it written down and someone who's like a writer can rewrite yeah. it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I really didn't want these stories, especially my friends who had died, to be lost because so many of them, if you Google them, they don't exist because yeah. their families did not want people to know. They didn't mm -hmm. have funerals. They didn't have obituaries. And I just wanted some of their lives to be and legacy to be memorialized in and that's the middle part of the book is a lot about that I, the book's in three sections um yeah yeah so anyway um so i just was writing like you know i i ended up with like a book that's like you know a c plus but then i brought in my co-author who's brilliant who i've worked with for years we've known each other for 20 years and we rewrote the book, we cut it a third, we rewrote it again, we cut it another third. Like, you know, it, it, I had no idea the process of writing a book. It's not a slow, I mean, it's not a fast process. No. <laughs> yeah, but we're really happy with the final product. I think it's, you know, I mean, we have 18 five-star reviews on Amazon right now, which has gone beyond, I, I was said to my husband last night, we, it's not just people who know and love me anymore. Like total strangers are giving us really good reviews. Yeah. No, it's just, as you were talking, I was just looking on, you know? I was just looking on Amazon, 
UK and it's, you know, great, all five-star reviews, great reviews. So it's great. So um, so basically we can find it on Amazon. Where else can we find it? And you better tell us what it's called because I'm not sure you've mentioned it's the name of the book. It's Still Positive. Here, I have one right here. Yeah, very good. It's Still Positive. Um, it is in, it's on almost all online books, uh, sales places like Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, it's in, in the U.S., we're in a lot of bookstores. I don't know that we've gotten popular enough to be like international. I'm hoping for that, you know. Hey. But yeah, yeah, we're 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 on. I have you know we're we're we have a publisher. It's not independently published, so they're really good at getting it out there. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Well, I've seen it on Amazon UK, so it's great, and I'm sure it's in other places as well. Are you going to do an Audible version? We have an Audible version. Um, right. Did not read it. Uh, I love our audiobook reader. I I was kind of laugh because uh, did you see the movie Sully about Sully Sullenberger? Yes. The yeah. play? So he said once that Tom Hanks was a better Sully Sullenberger than he was. That's I right. feel like that about my audiobook reader. I'm like, she's done 300 books. She's an actress. And I listen to her and I'm like, she's a better Julie Lewis than me. Like, it's like, she's so good at what she does. So um, yeah, I, I, it just came out on Audible last week. So brilliant. And what a brilliant title as well. It's so very clever, great pun. I love it. Thanks. Thanks. Well, look, thank you for spending time with us today. It's a remarkable story and, um, you know, absolutely amazing. So thank you. It's been great. The book's called Still Positive. It's available everywhere. And um, uh, there's a website, stillpositive.com. Calm, I think. Oh. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So you can. And look. then we're on Instagram at Still Positive Book. That's where we do most of our um, updated news. So fantastic. So there you are. Look in, find out more, buy the book, and um, maybe Julie can do another 30 hospitals quite soon instead of just loafing about enjoying yourself. <laughs> I'm kind of old for that. I have six grandkids now, which I never thought I'd have, but <laughs> they're a lot of fun. Brilliant. Thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you, Russell. You take care. Hi, thanks for listening. Hopefully that was a useful and interesting episode. As I said earlier, you can support our work by leaving a review, which does drive enhanced exposure. Or you can donate on our site, which is at qedod.com. You can purchase our series of books all about unravelling resilience, leadership, management and anxiety at qedod.com forward slash extras, along with some other free resources available on the site. We've also got a Patreon page and you, of course, can send us questions, ideas, thoughts, conversations and fresh subjects at info at qedod.com. Hopefully there's something there for you. Catch you next time around. <laughs>